0: Hey, welcome to on the couch with Dr. Carmen. I am Dr. Carmen and I am a licensed psychologist in the state of Florida. I am blessed to have Dr. Harold Chinitsky here with me as my guest. He is a sports psychologist practicing out of Clearwater in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we're going to talk today about sports psychology and how to have a champion's mindset. So um, tell us a little bit about what a sports psychologist
1: does. Delightful. Glad to be a part of this. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, Sports psychology is a specialty within the field of psychology. So you cannot be a licensed sports psychologist. You're a licensed psychologist with specialty training, specifically working with performance enhancement of either uh, a developing athlete, an elite athlete, could be working with coaches, the institution, et cetera, So sports psychology, uh, you can have specialty training. Uh, There are individuals, there are programs, master's programs, doctoral programs that specialize in that. And then you can work under sports psychologists and work with teams to get your experience. And there are a lot of things that run similar and parallel with the general profession of psychology. So an athlete may come to me because of depression or anxiety, but also we're looking at performance enhancement. So how we can get individuals to be motivated, lifted, energized enough, but not too overwhelmed. So we integrate a lot of different practical skills from cognitive behavioral, uh, bio-behavioral self-regulation, self-talk, goal setting, attention, being able to be in the moment. And so it's a real delight to see the marrying of all of these different research-based uh, areas in the profession of psychology applied to an elite athlete to help them perform when the lights are brightest.
0: Wow, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I, didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know it could be so complex. You know, people don't just go out and run marathons or play football. Oh,
1: no. we, got,
0: we got layers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I The youngest I work with is nine, and I can go all the way up to... Um, seniors. I have a a 75-year-old that I'm working with right now, and it could be from novice or just trying to kind of get into it and find a passion of their own. But mostly I work with elite athletes, so Olympians, pros, uh, nationally ranked junior athletes. And it is in essence to help them perform where the rest of us might perceive the situation as daunting, overwhelming, stressful, whatever it is. We teach them early on, and I love sharing this concept as a psychologist, There is no such thing as stress.
0: Ooh. Ooh. You got to say more about that.
1: (laughs) Well, if you stop and think about it, what makes you stressed doesn't necessarily make me stressed. And what may make me stressed doesn't necessarily make you stressed. The situation is always neutral. As we oftentimes say, a psychologist, your emotions are not caused by reality. They're caused by your perception of reality. So if you label something, something, it becomes that thing. So if I say, this is the biggest event of my life, well, I'm now physiologically going to react. I'm not going to be able to problem solve quickly. My muscles tighten up when I feel this. So Mm -hmm. as I always like to jokingly say, there is no such thing as stress, but we have a stress reaction and it's based on our perception our thoughts, our feelings, and our perceptions. So we, early on, try to help athletes keep this in perspective and teach them certain keys at a young age to help them from reacting like the rest of society. Mm -hmm. If you ever gone out with a friend and just kind of hit or played golf or something and kind of put a little money on it, and all of a sudden it's like, I feel stress. Well, as we always say, there are three things that do not matter. The name of the event, The number of people watching are the potential trophy. The name of the event doesn't change the laws of physics. Mm. If I label it as something else, well, now it becomes that. But let's say with golf, it's still ball club laws of physics. Right. Tennis. The court doesn't change just because you call it Wimbledon. The the net's the same height. I use my racket. It's when I start labeling it that I now change my physiology Mm. and my self-talk about this. The uh, number of fans. Well, you know, there's a couple more people showing up. Oh, I'm feeling a little nervous. Well, if you use that logic, when you play in the Super Bowl, these athletes should curl up in a ball and pee themselves. <laughs> but the reality is that not a single one of the fans touch you. Right. If I'm focusing on them, I'm not focusing on me and what I do control. And lastly, the trophy that you can win, you know, this is for the championship or that trophy or these points or that check. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an outcome. And we never focus on outcome. We always focus on the process to increase our probability of success getting there.
0: Well, that makes sense. And, and it makes more sense to me not being sports minded, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, helping people handle stress. But it makes sense to not label the thing a thing and just do what you're there to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, that's that's really cool. I had a
1: a woman just the other day, I was doing a a big presentation, and I said, in high school, I hated public speaking, and then I took a public speaking course. It helped me out a lot. Now, this is one of the most fun things I love to do. And I said, does anyone else have that concern about public speaking? The woman put her hand up. I asked her, you know, do you feel this way? She said, yes. I said, "Uh, what's your role here at this institution? She's a teacher. Where are you from? She's telling me where she's from. Do you know the people at the table here? She told me who they are and what they did. And then I asked everybody in the crowd, what is she doing right now? That's tricky. She's public speaking. (laughs) You have the ability. It's the way that you look at it, your perception, your self-talk that can cause you to become more overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. Negative self-talk depletes energy. Positive self-talk energizes. And for that woman, she would say some pretty harsh things about her ability And therefore, then she would withdraw from it.
0: Okay. So that makes it easy once we can catch ourselves? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it's better. You have to practice it because whatever you practice, you get better at. And she was probably practicing that for 30 years saying that I'm terrible. I'm terrible at public speaking. It's going to take her a while to now start developing a healthier self-talk and then Mm -hmm. develop the skills.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So what else do you do with your clients um, to help them, you know, get in the right mindset?
1: Gosh, uh, there's a lot of things like we were just talking about the perceptual issue, helping them keep things in perspective. Uh, Self-regulation where you and I and everyone who's listening would have a realization that when they feel stress, because Mm -hmm. of whatever label or perception you have, one of the things that happens is uh, our muscles tighten up. Um, Our respiratory rate changes, our heart rate, blood pressure, all start to change. And so we teach them calming exercises, how to quiet the mind and the body. Mm -hmm. And they practice that in such a way that when it happens, they have an intervention they can use to help quiet their body so they can perform at their best. So we always look at it from two sides of the coin. There's the prevention side, Mm -hmm. how I can make sure I perceive it in a healthy way in my self-talk. And then there's the intervention side. When I react, how can I quiet myself? And so we use those two in tandem.
0: Okay, that sounds awesome. So (laughs) uh, to use some uh, other sports figures like Michael Phelps with the radio on before the swim meet, getting in the zone kind of, you know, just going through the motions in your head, maybe.
1: So you are, you are spot on. I, I am glad you brought that out. Yes. One of the other tools that we use is visualization. Um, I refer to this one intervention, which we were just kind of briefly touching upon is the three-step Olympic home. So diaphragmatic breathing, you must increase oxygen to your brain and your body. You can think clearer process faster and begin to relax muscle relaxation I was trained with the Jacobson progressive muscle relaxation techniques, the longest name of any intervention I do, but they start at the feet and get to the head. Mm -hmm. I found that actually incongruent with the goals that we have. So I actually start from the head and then work my way down. And so it's cascading, it's using gravity. And Mm -hmm. since the brain controls the body, I prefer to control this first and then affect the body. And then the third part, which you were just hitting upon that Michael Phelps is famous for doing, and that's visualization. Mm -hmm. Visualization allows them to already have the mindset, been there, done that. If they see themselves in that role, if they need to develop new skills, um, the, the capacity of developing nuance, subtleties. If I visualize, I'm actually stimulating the same areas of the brain, that I would engage behaviorally. Mm -hmm. So I could increase, multiply, add to my practice and develop more and more muscle memory. And so for a lot of the athletes, I have them visualize what it is that they're doing Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: have them be able to do it while in a quiet state. And so then they can generalize that to the next time they're out there.
0: Awesome. And then that way also they're not associating, you know, Being at the putting green and trying to, you know, hit it and miss it, they're more associating it with calm (laughs) and the fact that it's going in, it's (laughs) going in and I'm, you know, everything's aligned the way it's supposed to go, right?
1: Oh, gosh, you you are, you're so wonderful with your questions. I love this. Yes. If I ask your listeners right now, don't think of a big purple elephant, especially the one with pink polka dots. <laughs> the curious aspect is our brain and we learned this from the research. You cannot tell your brain what not to focus on. So if you tell yourself, don't miss this putt or don't hit it in the water. Yes. All I'm focusing on is the water. I you know. let me get my scuff ball and gosh, I hope I. Don't, if I can hit a ball 250 yards, And a creek is at 70. The creek literally doesn't even exist pertaining to what my stroke is, unless I now focus on it. Right. So teaching ourselves to tell ourselves what we want to focus on, not what we don't want to focus on. (laughs)
0: Wow. I imagine a lot of athletes might have trouble with that one because lay people have a lot of trouble just with me trying to help them. Tell themselves the positive things, and it's mm-hmm. like you know, Doc. What, what are you talking about?
1: Beautiful. We we practice cognitive restructuring with a lot of athletes, where they have, <clears throat> pardon me, intrusive negative self-talk. And uh, one of the basketball players I work with, he gets hypercritical when something doesn't go the way he desires, and so we'll actually meet on the court. So we do a lot of in vivo work uh, in life, in real situation work. So. I'll be out there. Now he has pretty significant negative self-talk and we're working Mm -hmm. on cognitive restructuring, which is catch the negative and it's insert something that's positive, constructive, productive, that's based on reality. And so I'll be on the court with him and we'll, you know, be just shooting free throws. And let's say he makes one positive self-talk makes a second positive self-talk rims. It bounces off. Now I run up to him. I now pretend to be his negative self-talk. And I'll say something fairly offensive and fairly abusive, like you should quit or you're not worth this. You know, I'll give up your contract. Now he has to practice actually providing the positive, uh, constructive, productive statement. Like it was just one miss. You know, mm-hmm. I'm able to make the previous shots. I'll learn from that. Just keep the, you know, trust the process. Yeah. He now starts to practice that. And the more he practices, the positive, constructive, productive statement, the more natural it becomes for him.
0: Oh, and you said the more we practice, the better we get, right?
1: Regardless of what it is, if it's negative behavior, we get better. If it's positive behavior, we get better. We get better at whatever we practice.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm definitely wanting to practice more positive, constructive statements.
1: Yes, and a lot of people, a lot of the athletes will ask me, like when we do that three-step Olympic home, I go, so, Doc, should I should I take that out to my tournament this weekend? And I'll say, absolutely not. I'm like, huh? I go, well, when would you like a lifeguard to learn how to save lives when someone's being taken out to sea in a riptide or in a local pool with a float dummy? Obviously, you want to practice and get good. When do you want a firefighter to learn how to fight fires? When there's a roaring blaze and a family stuck on the second floor or in a controlled chimney burn? Mm -hmm. You want the athlete or our patients, we want them to practice, 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 so they become good and skilled at it, then they can implement it. But if they just try to use it to start out and they're Mm -hmm. really not skillful, odds are it may fail. They may see it as a negative kind of intervention that they won't return to, and it's unfortunate at that point.
0: Well, how many practices (laughs) would somebody need to, you know, Maybe they're they're having a a, a bad slump. How how, how long does it take?
1: Uh, You got two things. Let me unpack that. Uh, Sports psychologists, we don't believe in slumps. Slumps mean you're dwelling on the past.
0: Oh, oops.
1: Yeah. And so the curious aspect, if something bad happened there and I'm still dwelling on it, it really has no effect on this. So if I miss a putt and now I'm going to hit my driver, different clubs, different strategies, different laws of physics in terms of my form but if i'm still muttering to myself about the past i'm now going to impact adversely the present and then people roll into these slumps oh practicing these i ask my patients to practice the three-step olympic column three times a day
0: okay
1: now i tell them i'm hedging my bets Because if I tell you to practice it once a day and you don't, you practiced it zero. If I say three times and you practice it two, even one, at least you practiced it. (laughs) So, and I'll tell them that straight up. And obviously the more you practice, the better you get. So I usually look at the length of time we're trying to get this exercise is to get it shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. So when we start out, we'll take a half a session. And obviously, people just can't be going around 30 minutes a day, three times a day. Right. So we do 30 minutes for the full session of the relaxation. Then we do an abbreviated session, which is down to 10 minutes. The ultimate goal, two breaths.
0: Two breaths?
1: hmm So if you've ever seen any of the pitchers that I work with, They will step off the rubber. They'll get the ball from the catcher. They'll step off the rubber, look out towards the dugout to the uh, crowd. They're not staring at them. They're just looking out there. They all take a deep breath in, diaphragmatic breathing, willfully increasing oxygen in my brain and my body so I can be in the moment. They tighten up their muscles and then cascade down, releasing their muscles, elongating the muscles, return back to the rubber, get the signal from the catcher, Visualize the pitch they're going to throw. I'm not throwing for a championship. I'm not throwing to win a game. I'm throwing a pitch. I see the pitch I'm about to throw, and then I say some positive self uh, affirming statement, and then I go into my form. Mm -hmm. All my athletes go through that. Hockey players from blue line to blue line. It is the capacity of practicing it enough to quiet the body in that type of mind, mainly because. They practice it so much that they become very familiar with that state of being. Yes. And it's that state of being that you can return to because you're you're mentally prepared to do that. Your body now responds accordingly.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've practiced it so much that that circuitry can flip like that mm-hmm. once you've got it down. Yes. And what sounds like it could take a long time mm-hmm. becomes... A little bit shortened because you've got that quick reaction
1: now. Well, you, you, you establish that routine and the mm-hmm. change is difficult. As we all know, for any of your listeners, you know, we have a plan to change and it's difficult to do that. So the capacity to be able to practice whatever it is, whether if you have a, a phobia of elevators, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you have this, perception of what's going to happen. And you have then negative self-talk, which affects you preventively. You can address that, but you have to practice it. And once you're in that situation, you can teach yourself to quiet. So for everyone who's listening, we used to tell our athletes, go out there and don't react. Mm -hmm. And then we discovered we were wrong through brain science. We, we now understand that all humans react. We can't help it but react. So the goal isn't to not react. The reality is everyone will react. The goal is how quickly can you respond? The most elite athletes in the world, it is the 10 seconds after an event takes place, a pitch, a missed ground stroke, whatever it might be, react. You have to learn from it rather than just emotionally reacting to it. And then we Within 10 seconds, we reorient ourselves to reset and restart. Mm-hmm. Most people, that would be a challenge. We all react. So the goal for anyone listening is how quickly can I respond?
0: Mm-hmm. And you
1: can use some of these skills that we're going over even right now.
0: That's awesome. Now, what if, you know, I'm also training to be an elite athlete, but I have some underlying Anxiety or sadness that have been battling off and on. What, how does that change the equation?
1: We are a, a complex creature, and we all have goals. And sometimes issues that we might have experienced from our childhood can greatly affect the way we perform as adults which is more of a childhood, maybe almost a traumatic experience or the way we were taught or the way our parents referred to us, and they may have had their own issues, and we unfortunately were the victim of the environment. And I always point that out, that when you were a child, you were a victim of your environment, but once you hit the age of majority, if you keep doing the same things, you're not a victim anymore, you're a volunteer. Mm. At which point, let's choose a different way of kind of maybe referring to oneself. So that has, maybe your parent was hypercritical and you took that on, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that same style. You may be sabotaging yourself. The saboteur is there to protect us from our ultimate fear. Like I'm going to fail, I'll be rejected, I'll be embarrassed. And so I won't do the things that put me in that situation that I might end up failing in those situations. Right. But it's also a helpful way to figure out Well, what do I need to work on? What do I need to master? So it's not only preventing us from achieving our goals. If you use it productively, it's Mm -hmm. actually a roadmap to figure out solutions to master. If someone's depressed or anxious, well, then we start looking at also addressing those. If it's behavioral interventions first, such Mm -hmm. as calming techniques for anxiety, Or depression, it may be I isolate too much. My eating habits are poor. My sleep habits are poor. Um, The symptoms of depression are literally the antithesis, and then we move towards what the treatments are. So if I isolate, I need to socially kind of support. If I'm eating poorly, I need to have better nutrition. I need to get a more consistent circadian rhythm for Mm -hmm. my sleep habits on that. My self-talk, I need to practice positive... So, the symptoms literally give you kind of the antithesis of here's the game plan of what you would want to do. Right. But even for those individuals who are anxious or depressed, if you do all these behavioral interventions, we may find that the symptoms stay, which may mean it's more of an underlying biological issue. And then you would want to work with your general practitioner, your psychiatrist to be able to take a look at possibly some medication for treatment and that combination for some individuals is very helpful.
0: Okay, And for, you know, athletes who they may think, well, I don't need that kind of help. You know, I'm just going to work it off, you know, on the field, on the court, whatever what do you say then to them when it's really costing them professionally and personally
1: well as a society we have unfortunately raised many athletes to believe that they are special and rules don't apply to them they don't experience consequences there's a lot of safety and buffer around them so we as a society have actually contributed to that because we glorify them we um, you know, hold them up on a pedestal and we don't hold them accountable, many of them. And so helping those individuals who may have kind of that over-belief. And one of the things that I always try to talk to the athletes about, it's all about performance. Mm-hmm. So you may feel you don't need to address it. But if I'm working collaboratively, not only with the individual, but also with the coaching staff and the general manager and occasionally the owner of a team, if there's something going on behaviorally, it's important maybe to get their feedback where they're suggesting, encouraging, you might want to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. I really love having my own people that I work with tell their teammate Hey, I don't know what's going on. But why don't you go give a call to the Shinitsky guy? I worked with him before. Nobody needs to know. Because yeah. if the commissioner of a league, the owner of a team, or the coach refers that person to me, well, now they're kind of in the system. The person oh, wasn't motivated to talk about it in the first place, and now they're being told to talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: a third-person referral. I'm not too keen on those. I get them, but I'm not too keen on it. I'd rather get one of their friends who says, why don't you give a call Mm -hmm. so i'm now vetted by that person their teammate they trust right and i now have an individual who's motivated to talk about these things Mm -hmm. i'll say to the athletes never overestimate your ability and underestimate your foe now that's where better teams lose to lesser teams because they look past them but it also could be like i got this that's not a problem mental health is not going to knock me down. Right, right. And if their performance is suffering in some ways, well, you're overestimating your ability. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about that in terms of it always comes to performance. And a lot of these athletes who have identified with nothing other than just performance and uh, productivity in their sport, if they see a decrease in their performance, Mm -hmm. well, then they're willing to almost do anything to address it. They may do a lot on their own, but over time, we find that we can assist them, and then their performance starts to recover and almost immediately, which is really great, because now they're addressing the issue, right. and they're more likely to continue it. Each one of the sports programs should have someone now uh, in at the major league levels and at mm-hmm. the Olympic levels working on mental performance, and they should have a sports psychologist who can work with them. Right. So I'll do team presentations so people get to know me on the team. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking just to them. I'm talking to everybody. So can they trust this guy? Does he seem to know what he's talking about? And then I'll do these things called micro sessions. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I'll sit down next to them in the locker room and I'll just make an observation or comment that lets them know I was paying attention to something they said that I respected and heard what they were talking about. Or that i'm aware of it could be while we're out on the field in uh, batting practice or something and they just mm-hmm. take a moment and i'll just you know approach and just kind of indicate hey if you want to talk about this thing i'm always available and then just move on so it's yeah. just planting the seed and for the your listeners you've, you've gone through um, the stages of change model um, everyone moves in this five-step process to change there's pre-contemplative where you're resistant or you're unaware you need to change. You can only move one stage at a time. And you get someone to the contemplative where they're weighing it out, the pros, the cons of action and inaction. And then you get to the point to the preparation phase where, hey, you know, I think I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to hit the gym. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to save more money. I'm still not mm-hmm. changing, but let me get my ducks in a row. Right. Then I get to the action phase. And just because people are changing doesn't mean they've changed. We call those New Year's resolutions. And after six months, then you get to someone who is in a maintenance phase where they're doing it on a consistent basis. So like you said, if someone is not interested and they're in the pre-contemplative and you have to understand then where is this person when their readiness to change, now all I can do is plant the seed. I just let them become familiar with me Mm -hmm. that I possibly have something to offer. So they're not at the contemplative, but I want to get them at that point. So if someone's resistant, you have to plant the seed. You can give them information, but you don't want to force them into change. And a lot of times that may be the only option. It's not the best, but you want to help people move from pre-contemplative to contemplative preparation then to action. And that's where I establish a relationship over the long haul and help Mm -hmm. them move through it, especially when they're seeing me work with other people and seeing the results.
0: Yeah. I mean, because people see athletes like I think it was Antonio Brown have a meltdown and quit Mm. in the middle of a game or other people are doing things that are harmful to themselves and others off the court. You know, domestic violence, substance use and abuse. And it's like, is nobody talking to them or could could please somebody talk to them?
1: Yeah. And in those situations, the behavior has already gotten inappropriate illegal uh Mm -hmm. certainly destructive and so the league has to intervene at that point Mm -hmm. um and and that's you know it could be financial consequences Mm -hmm. you know it could be time playing is now removed it could be you are required to go now and talk to somebody you might have to go to treatment
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and and those are leverage third person referrals. The person's not necessarily motivated, but it may be the entree into helping someone make a change. Substance abuse, remember, whatever you practice, you get better at. So if somebody gets depressed or sad or in an interpersonal relational problem, and they turn to alcohol as their solution, or they get high or do something else, that becomes the typical self-regulating treatment
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that in and of itself can not only develop its own problems right. but it can contribute now to others and so we see about substance abuse domestic violence we see those especially when someone retires oh. um like with the military individuals i work with the athletes the same thing the more someone's identity is tied to their kind of role Mm -hmm. the more challenging the transition is so we always i do this presentation called life after sport i also do it life after service so military people if you can begin to anticipate to plan to look forward to the transition is less adversely impacted Many individuals, unfortunately, they don't want to think about it. They don't think about it. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, they don't retire on their own accord. There's some reason, injury, or they don't get picked up by a team, and their career is over. Yes. The average pro football career is just under 3.5 years.
0: After all of that.
1: after Imagine going for a College degree, a master's, and a doctoral degree, and then being told you have three years to make all the money you can. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, that is a statistical anomaly because people like Tom Brady take the average because they're 20-plus years. So if the average is, you know, with numbers and statistics, they it's called skewing it. They're pulling that number. The mean kind of gets pulled out to those extreme yes. ones. Then there's the medium, which is where 50% of them are. And then there's the mode, which is the most frequent. So the vast majority of athletes, even professionals, have incredibly short careers. And then they've got to move on to something else. And many of them have never thought or planned. So we have to help them transition
0: mm-hmm.
1: early. But if not, then we have to work with them in an intervention, which could be substance abuse treatment, it could be anger management. It, it can be working with interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, many of these individuals, like I said, they have been given more opportunities. And so they never had to, well, they, they didn't have to necessarily develop the same inhibition, the inhib- inhibitory response that we use with our frontal lobe. Yes. I know I can do this, but should I, right? That capacity, of discretion is the better part of valor, you know, anger. We always talk about when your emotions supersede your cognitions, you're at risk of saying or doing something you may later regret. And with the athletes early on, we teach them emotions out Mm
0: -hmm. information
1: in. And so as they go through life, whenever they have emotional reactivity, Mm -hmm. We have to teach them emotion self-regulation, the ability, how do you catch yourself when you physiologically, if you're upset and angry, you can feel yourself. And this can be a trigger for you to, wait, I I need to self-regulate. It could be when I'm getting upset. So as I begin to escalate Mm -hmm. and I start saying things to myself, certain self-talk comments that would legitimate, validate, and allow me When I hear those sentences in my head, those need to be warning signs. I need to now back it off. I need to take 10. I need to go for a stroll. I need to separate myself from this overstimulating situation. Mm -hmm. Teaching individuals the concept of violence, aggression, is never acceptable. And too many individuals in competitive sports play sports that are violent and aggressive and so they're rewarded for this so it can be a difficult time when they leave the sport and being able to point out to them what makes you vocationally successful is not laterally transferable to intimate relationships
0: right
1: so boy i just did a lot of data dumping there
0: whoo (laughs) Yeah, but it all makes sense. And, you know, I'm even clicking with, you know, the military too, because they're taught to be, to think and act a certain way because they are dealing with, you know, the enemy, whoever we have defined in that mission. And then now i got to come home and be nice and kind and all the things, but I'm a killing machine on the field. You know, Mm -hmm. it is what it is. And how do I make that transition? Do we have enough of a culture to help athletes to, one, begin to plan for retirement, and two, to begin to understand that they have to separate who they are on the court, on the field, um, from who they are every day.
1: There are programs set up for professional athletes to look at that transition. Um, The earlier we can start that, the better. I, I do this presentation, Life After Sport, back in college. Oh. Because ninety-nine out of one hundred college athletes are not going pro in their sport. They're mm-hmm. gonna to have to go pro in a career.
0: Ninety nine. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. one out of a hundred goes pro. Wow. <laughs> I, I do call it plan B, but it's really plan A. I just, you know, who no one wants to hear it as plan A. Um, yeah, so this whole idea that if you want to go pro, you better be that one. Mm-hmm. But you also need to have other ideas the most successful athletes in the world also have alternatives to their sport. They're already thinking, what career ventures will I take? College needs to be used and college programs. I need to encourage and challenge them to step it up. Mm -hmm. Many programs, if it's football or basketball, they get hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, you know, for their program for the institution. And if their athlete goes pro, oh, they're, they're tight. Yeah. But a lot of times athletes go through the program and they're not really focusing on their education and the institution really isn't too overly concerned. And if they don't go pro, but they were good in college, Mm -hmm. the institution sometimes kind of wash their hands of it. Yes. Yes. So I'm, I always like to encourage the institution to put together these programs. Remember, it's student-athlete, student first, athlete right. second. When they get to the pros, there are lots of programs and services for them. They have lots of speakers who come in. They have mm. mentors that have been there already, and now we're talking about it. I have most of my athletes watch uh, an ESPN 30 for 30 called Broke. Ooh. Yeah, and it follows, it documents many athletes who made millions of dollars who don't have a dime. Mm -hmm. And it's by virtue of not having financial literacy, um, thinking the money chain will just keep on coming. Right. Um, Not being able to have long-term goals with short-term steps and figuring out a budget. Mm -hmm. There's an old adage that says, I'd rather, let's see it. I can live like a king for a year or a prince for a lifetime. And so helping them to understand that concept, if they have a posse, well, the posse doesn't usually work and they just look at them as an ATM. Right. They're a bunch of yes guys, which are pretty unhealthy for good Mm decision-making. So the whole idea of helping them understand besides the sport what other interests do you have? You know, what would be something that gives you a sense of purpose and value and identity? Because when the sport ends, right. you, they lose purpose, identity, self-worth. We need to help them develop other avenues where they can get the value, just like mm-hmm. someone retiring from their job. Right. That same thing. When you retire, you should be busier doing things you love but you have to plan on that ahead of time. Otherwise someone just hits a wall and you see that depression that kicks in, right. in isolation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well kind of gone through the whole life cycle of an athlete. I'm encouraged to know that, you know, the programs, the um, commissioners and everybody is really committed. Cause there was a lot of question about that, especially, you know, with recent incidents, you know, is it, All about what the athletes can do and the money they can make you, or do we care about them as human beings to, you know, help them position themselves better?
1: My head is rocking back and forth. Um, It's a business. There are entertainers,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and it ever all sports can be safer. Mm -hmm. They're in the developing levels, we actually have something called safe sport Mm -hmm. in all sports. Mm -hmm. So if you as a parent know of something that's going on, that's inappropriate, you can reach out to safe sport and they have a specific subdivision for your sport. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, Yeah, because there's a lot of things that we've discovered with, unfortunately, athletes being taken advantage of in Mm -hmm. horrific ways. Um, We talk about, um athletes and social activism helping giving having a voice for those right. who are the voiceless but for injuries and their welfare the leagues are beginning to make productive changes
0: mm-hmm. for the
1: longest time for decades before now there was well, let's just kind of say a reluctance to acknowledge long-term consequences. Mm -hmm. We're now becoming more aware of people who give of their body for this celebrity status and for hopeful economic wealth. There can be significant behavioral, neurological, medical consequences and does the league invest from a preventive and a supportive way afterwards Mm -hmm. and they're beginning to now i think our culture the research i think the public are really encouraging that and i think to put on a appropriate i mean i hope they're doing it for good reasons but they could also be doing it for a public acknowledgement but that is something that is needed for athletes i I work with many who have cte Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm sorry, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a big medical terminology. And I apologize for your listeners. If, but CTE is the long-term consequence of having, uh, trauma concussions. And that's why we're now very concerned. If someone has a concussion,
0: mm-hmm. there's a con-
1: concussion protocol that you're supposed to go. We have to go through. Yes. And you need a medical provider to give permission to come back because if you have a concussion while you're still having the neurological consequences, there is something called second impact syndrome Mm -hmm. where it can be fatal if it occurs at that time. And so pro athletes, whether it's in football, volleyball, field hockey, soccer, all of these sports where the head is rattled, Yes. Um, You know, new helmets stop fractures, but that's not necessarily stopping a concussion (laughs) and we can do better. And I think we hopefully will continue to address that. And the leagues hopefully are taking an active role in that.
0: Cause I know that's not new. I mean, it's probably over 15 years old that they've been trying to get these things instituted. And we had the incident with the player in Miami. It's like, why did you put them back in? We just had an incident, you know, the previous game um, people were upset. You know, why, why does it take so long to call a game when everybody's devastated and upset about what, you know, Damar Hamlin went through with that freak accident, you know, yeah. so people, you know, they've been questioning, you know, how safe are the sports? You know, some people question taking their kids out of peewee football mm-hmm. and different things like that, because what if that happens to my kid?
1: Very good point. The most um, violent sports, or I shouldn't say most, but many of the violent sports, um are entertainment for the masses, and it's usually not individuals from uh very comfortable economics that may actually go into it it's mm-hmm. it is an opportunity to move out of right. challenging economic situations, which is why I call them entertainers and because they're entertaining the masses um we look at them as gladiators in a lot of these sports, MMA, boxing. Mm-hmm. Um and they they take more physical assaults. I mean, this is a head-on collision, you know, on a regular basis throughout right. a pro sport, whether you're when I used MMA boxing or football on a constant basis. Um it used to be they were they were much slower to making any intervention. The fight doctor in boxing used to be paid by the producer, you know, so oh. the promoter. So there was kind of a well, subsidizing within the league. So there was a conflict of interest. You know, we mm-hmm. want to keep the fight going. And if I'm if I'm stopping fights early, I right. may not get a contract to ref you know, be the official in it. Um in sports you know are you leaving it all on the field you know blood sweat and tears this mentality um and if you don't well then we're going to vilify you for being weak right. or fragile or you know you're a damaged product i mean part of that is you know the fans we're you know mm-hmm. fan is short for fanatic right and we are entertained by somebody who's doing something that we would never even put ourselves into that position we may say we would right but i would never get into a boxing ring and have mike tyson take a swing at me no. um, so I, I think as a society we are beginning to have better appreciation uh, during the olympics when um, the greatest female gymnast of all time uh, developed the twisties you know here she was Simone Biles, she has two moves named after her. She is a phenom, just incredible. But she lost the capacity of understanding her orientation in 3D. Mm-hmm. If I asked your listeners right now just to stand up and jump and do one circle, just around themselves, not over themselves, could they do it? Most people would say, I could do one. You know, just kind of go around. Okay. And I ask you, do two. You know, uh, how about with a twist in there? You know, ice skaters, gymnasts, yes. they're moving in these three dimensions, and they have a chance of incredible physical harm if they truly don't know where they're at in orientation. Mm-hmm. And we get upset when they aren't performing for our entertainment.
0: Right.
1: And we start on on the internet, we can now start in uh, anonymity start making negative comments as though they're somehow weak to understand that they are humans
0: mm-hmm.
1: who do superhuman things yes. who have potentially the, the same or worse consequences because of the activity they engage in
0: mm-hmm.
1: and as if we if we keep the humanity in that we're yes. less reactive we can empathize so i think the sporting world is beginning to become appreciative and understanding for lots of different reasons as long as they're responding i'm happy with that and i think the fans could also catch themselves from you know being a monday morning quarterback on somebody who is struggling whether right. it's anxiety depression like naomi asaka um, with social anxiety yes um you know michael phelps talking about his conditions um Brandon Marshall, all these athletes are coming forward acknowledging their own struggles, which I think helps under helps underline that athletes are human. Right. And they have the same struggles. It's equal opportunity mental health mm-hmm. issues. And so it's I think it's fantastic that many of them are coming forward and sharing their stories, which I think helps more and more people in society more teams, more owners, more commissioners do the right thing to help out these individuals.
0: Yeah, definitely, especially, you know, for the other part of society that really doesn't want to acknowledge that we all may need some help with, you know, emotions and mood and things like that from time to time because we're human.
1: Yes. If if I am an athlete, I I fear that if I tell my teammates I'm suffering, they may not be able to trust me in mm-hmm. the future. If I tell my coach, I fear that I may be benched and never get back in. If I tell the owner I, or GM, I just may get traded.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those fears prevent people from being able to open up. It's one of the reasons why sports psychologists exist in those micro sessions, which establish the relationship. Yes. So I have athletes come to me because they have mental health issues and they feel safe with me i'm not going to you know divulge the the issues that they're dealing with and so helping them in the future they will then promote the field and that Mm -hmm. if they see one of their friends suffering they'll encourage them they'll say hey you should really address that and maybe i know somebody that you can go talk to nice
0: well, we've covered the whole gamut <laughs> <laughs> and we we understand that, you know, it's not just about the mechanics of the thing or just to be Super Bowl champion or, you know, get that an NBA championship or any of those things. It's it's about the whole human being mm-hmm. and it's planting seeds from the beginning till, you know, after their career yes. you know, so that they can be the healthiest mentally um have that champion mindset and succeed but also succeed with you know being able to transition into life after
1: sports quite true it's the title of my book is a champion's mindset and so they'll have a technical coach who goes over specific techniques and there's tactical approaches Mm -hmm. that they can use they have a nutritional approach to make sure they fuel the engine they have a physiologist or a strength coach someone to actually build the machine and they also need to help be mentally tough and that's where sports psychology comes in to help an an athlete let go of the past but learn from it so it's learn let go how to physiologically be in the moment don't get ahead of myself being able to use positive self-talk know that i've done this in the past trust my experience my coaching my skills get out of my own way And so I can actually quiet my mind and perform at the most elite levels, where most everybody else who's watching would find it to be overwhelming and daunting. And that's oftentimes the difference between the most elite athletes and the rest of society. They actually have a quieting in their brain, deactivation, and and most everyone else would be like, oh my God, I'd be freaking out. So you're right. We we certainly covered the watershed on this today. Yeah.
0: So how would they get in touch with you if it's not by word of mouth? How would they <laughs> get connected with you?
1: Um, well, if it's not through word of mouth, which is the most common way for me, uh, there are two ways. You could uh, check me out online, and that is www.drshinitsky.com, D-R-S-H-I-N-I-T-Z-K-Y.com, or you can give me a call at 727 560 Two six
0: nine All right. Well, thank you for coming and sitting on the couch and talking to us today. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of nuggets out of this one. So you guys, if you have some more questions, you know, I'll try to pass them through to Dr. Shanitsky um, and just let us know what resonated with you most. And don't forget to like us and rate us and we'll see you next time on the couch. Right.